Visible in the Northern Hemisphere on May 30th, 1984, was a fully annular solar eclipse. It was the first of its kind in 33 years. Those in Claremont watched the moon pass over the center of the sun. It looked ringed with fire. This is the story of Bernice Courdemanche, who was only 17 when she was murdered. I wonder if Bernice went outside to see the eclipse. I wonder if people were talking about it over breakfast in a diner, over in the woolen mill in the factories. The weather report for that day noted that it was cloudy. So maybe Bernice missed the looming shadow shifting behind the clouds. Listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode three. Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for our subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. have you been able to learn about Bernice? What I learned about Bernice was um, she was uh, going to school. Um, I found out that she was a nurse's aide. Then she was 16 when she disappeared, possibly hitchhiking to go meet up with her boyfriend. Are there any similarities that you see between your case and Bernice's? I, I believe, um, well, one, victim of opportunity. And uh, two, we were both stabbed. Jane and I wanted to know more about that day and more about Bernice. So Jane and I go to the library in Claremont and discover something pretty interesting about the weeks before Bernice disappeared. She was last seen by her boyfriend's parents at their home in West Charlestown where she had been staying. Yeah, and then she was going to meet her boyfriend. Yeah, she was meeting, yeah, she was visiting her boyfriend, Toby, Colby. Oh my God, that poor kid, he must have been picked on so bad in school. <laughs> At his brother's Lately, school. Bernice had been shirking school. Her parents say it's because her new boyfriend, Toby, was a quote, bad influence. And as listeners or producers of true crime, we're trained in a sense to look doubly hard at the men in a missing or murdered woman's life. I wondered about Bernice's boyfriend, Toby, for the better part of a year. 
Who was this guy? Where is he now? And exactly what kind of bad influence are we talking about here? Recently, I found Toby's number and gave him a call, and I discovered just what Bernice's parents were concerned about. Hello? Hello, Toby? Hello? Hello, this is Jennifer. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Can you speak up? Yeah, can you hear me now? Hello? Hello? I bet you feel like an idiot hollering at your phone. Uh, leave me a message. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. I'd been had. So Toby is a harmless prankster. A good-hearted man with something of the lovelorn boy about him who never got over his first girlfriend. Toby and Bernice's relationship seemed like any first love. Intense, and yet innocent. Toby and I finally got to talk to each other, and it was right before he had to hurry over to the church. His niece was getting married. I'm just about, we got a bunch of setup to do today. The girls are all off getting their nails done, and I think it's 27 degrees out. With all this talk about love and weddings, I asked him to talk about first meeting Bernice. Uh, Bernice and I met in school, uh, Stevens High School. Um, I believe it was sophomore. Uh, she's transferred in the, uh, in the, from the eighth grade in Unity. She started going to school in Claremont because Unity is a small town and they only went up to the eighth grade. The Cordomashes say that Bernice was a great student, but she had a hard time adjusting to the larger class sizes. I know she started hanging out with some of the same people I was hanging out with, so we eventually we met each other and... And from there, we ended up hooking up and seeing a lot of each other. And what did you like about each other? Um, I don't know. She was she was different. She was kind of a you know more country style girl than the big Claremont City girls. You know, <laughs> kind of more laid back, kind of into animals and things like that stuff. I was into. She was into like you know talking about seeing deer on the way into school and things like that. That's adorable. So did did her family live kind of out in the country? Yeah, they're probably they're probably about halfway between me and Claremont. Yep, they had you know dogs and rabbits and things like that. They actually lived in a mobile home. Did you know her family well? Uh yeah, pretty well. Yep, I've known one of her uncles since I was I don't know twelve years old. Probably I never met her you know until school time. But she had she had a bigger family on the other side that I'd never met. Up in Vermont somewhere, I think Hazleton, Vermont. She was the only one from her family in the in there, except for Robbie and Chris when they eventually went there. But they were still back in Unity in grade school when when everything happened. Not very social people. I mean, I think that's why they lived out in the country. You know, I, I'm sure they were social at work. Her father was a boss at the Woolen Mill. And her mother was a nurse at Sullivan County Nursing Home. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they, they had friends at work probably, but uh, never any visitors to the house. I think they, they're more or less just laid back. Laid back and stuck to themselves for the most part. I've never seen them going out to dinner with friends or anything like that, you know? Never. And what was uh, Bernice's relationship with her parents? For the most part, it was pretty good. Um, I know she was a little bit rebellious sometimes. She kind of wanted to be in town and stuff like that and she would sneak out and 
that would make them mad and then they'd be on the outs for a little while and then everything would be okay after a little while. Bernice got a job as a nurse's aide at the Sullivan County home just north of Unity. Her mother was also a nurse there. There's an old article in the Eagle Times, just after Bernice disappeared. In the article, a woman named Judith is quoted. She was the director of nursing at the Sullivan home. Judith says Bernice was an enthusiastic teenager who was happy with her job and the way her life was going. She was also just thrilled about getting her driver's license soon. I used to drive her home after work sometimes, and we would talk about her desire to pursue nursing. End quote. May 30th was a Wednesday. We do know that Bernice went to her job that day. Yeah, she was she was working at the county home and my brother-in-law over in Newport needed help. And he had asked me, my brother-in-law asked me to come over and help him change a transmission. So I had called Bernice at work and told her that I was gonna go there. And I asked her if she could get a ride from one of her coworkers and just come straight into Newport. Or, you know, if she wanted me to wait at home for her or, and then go over when she got out or whatnot. And she said, oh, no, no, I can get a ride from here. There's four or five people that live in Newport that work here that she knew well. So her plan was to get out of work and, and get a ride from one of them and just meet me at my sister's house. She had been living at the Colby home for a couple of weeks at that point, something that Jane and I discovered. And we were curious as to why. So I asked Toby. Uh, well, she had gotten in trouble for sneaking out. And uh, the night she came to my house and started staying with us, she had a bunch of black and blues across her back and her side and her ribs from a pool stick because her dad held, they had a pool table in their living room and her dad held her across the pool table by her hands while her mom beat her with the pool stick. And uh, that's why she ended up moving out and living with us. Yeah, I mean, it happens. My dad wasn't exactly the gentlest man, but he definitely uh, corrected us when we needed it. For her, though, there was nothing like she had ever seen. She never, ever had anything like that happen to her before. It was pretty traumatic for her. And then what was her parents' reaction when she decided to stay with you and your family? Um, Actually... We never really spoke much. Um, it was just a short time before she disappeared. I knew she had talked to her mom a couple times at the, at the county home where they were both working. And uh, I don't know what transpired in the conversations. I think it was more just mom trying to get her to come back home. I feel sad for Bernice, and I totally understand why she would want to live elsewhere. Vivian, Toby's mother, recalls returning home just after Bernice arrived, at about 3 p.m. on May 30th. She said she found Bernice in the kitchen, heating up some leftover chopped suey. After a brief chat, Vivian left once more to run an errand. And when she returned about half an hour later, Bernice was gone. And from there, the timeline is a bit piecemeal. Bernice must have left the Colby home around 3.30 p.m. She didn't take her purse, which contained her address book and social security card. When I spoke to the former Claremont chief of police, Mike Prazo, 
He said he thought he remembered Bernice stopping in town to have a sandwich with her father that day. Robert worked at Dartmouth Woolen Mills off of Sullivan Street. As far as I know, she never saw her dad before hitchhiking, no. Yeah, that seems to make more sense, because everything I've seen reported is that your mom was the last person to see her. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the last person, because somebody reported seeing her hitchhiking on Washington Street. After speaking with Toby, it seems far more likely that Bernice was dropped off by a co-worker before going back to the Colby home to change and eat. But both sources agree that Bernice was last seen about a mile from the Colby home, on the corner of North Street and Washington. Presumably, she intended to hitch to Newport to meet up with Toby and his brother. This is the last time anyone saw Bernice. Memories are curious things. Facts become confused or composite. But mostly, people remember how they felt. So where Bernice went and when is a little obscured after all this time. The fact remains that Bernice was gone. Toby remembers that feeling precisely. And she never showed up. I knew something was wrong. Within an hour of her not showing up, I, I sat on the front porch for another hour just looking and watching and waiting for her to come. And she just never came. I could have found a way, you know, had I known, I would have picked her up at work. I would have went and got her from work. I could have, I could have waited two hours for her to get out and I could have went and picked her up from work and brought her with me and instead of going there early and, you know, there's so many things that could have happened that could have changed the whole thing, but you just don't know. You don't know. There's another story that was circulating around Claremont. An eyewitness reported seeing Bernice walk out of DeMonte's store on Route 103 and get into a white pickup truck with two men. Chief Prazo also said that he remembered the report of Bernice getting into a white vehicle. Yeah, and actually um, rumors went around for the longest time because my dad had a white truck. But my dad was with um, my mom and they never saw her from the house on. And they were together the whole time. Vivian is also on record, explaining that she and Bernice had been at DeMonte's the evening before her disappearance, and that she herself owned a white vehicle. Toby has a different idea. It raised suspicion in my mind because um, she had an ex-boyfriend, JR, whose father also had a white truck. So I didn't know if maybe they were picked up by him by them if she was picked up by them but maybe these two stories are composites toby's definitely makes more sense it connects the white pickup truck with two men but potentially it wasn't outside of demonte's would you be suspicious of them at all um like not really i mean the only thing that made me suspicious was the fact that he also had a white truck right gotcha and he also lived like on the other side of the bridge on Washington Street where she was hitchhiking, where she was last seen hitchhiking. Like if she was hitchhiking where she was last seen, you could actually see her from their apartment. By the time they went to question them, her ex-boyfriend's father who owned the white truck, had, he was a tree climber and he had had a heart attack and fell out of a tree and died before they could interview him. It, it kind of bothered me that you know, it was reported and they waited so long to speak to them. I mean, they waited so long that 
tragedy happened in their family and the person they needed to talk to had died. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. With no leads, Bernice would remain missing for a while. For whatever reason, the police almost never listened to a family's intuition that something's wrong. Such was the case with Bernice's disappearance, even though she was a minor. I think it was all handled kind of crazy because there was a few reports of her, you know, leaving home at night and things like that. So they, they really treated it more like a runaway situation than anything else. According to Vivian, Toby's mom, Bernice was excited about taking her driving test in two days, and she had plans with Toby to go to the beach that weekend. Bernice's elder brother was also away in Boston, getting a special kind of eye surgery. She had been worried about him, and would have wanted to know if her brother was okay. So this was a girl who had every reason to stick around. This wasn't someone ready to run away. Over the weeks that followed, Several articles cropped up in the local papers with pleas from the Kudermash family for information about Bernice. Bernice's parents have since passed away, but Bernice has a brother named Chris, and he was kind enough to exchange a few messages with me. It's difficult to describe our conversation because in many ways it was unorthodox. Chris declined to be interviewed, explaining that it would do nothing to help him. And I think that's important to meditate on for a minute. How would telling me, a virtual stranger, about his sister's brutal murder help him at all? At the heart of it, I'm asking Chris to relive the most traumatizing thing that ever happened to him, the death of his sister. I think I'm asking to live in his pain for a while and try to understand it. But he might think I'm asking him to translate his pain to someone who could never understand. So I get why he declined to speak on the record. But then Chris asked me a question. He asked... Why in the first place are you trying to find who killed my sister? And after years of researching these cases, I never asked myself this. Jane, of course, has her why, but I didn't have an answer. Honestly, it kind of threw me into an existential loop, a chaos soup of why we do anything at all, ever. But I think the real answer is pretty simple. I've begun to feel a similar responsibility toward these women, the same kind that Jane talked about in episode one. And responsibility can be burdensome. Jane told me of her own encounter with Bernice's brother, Chris. The story is painful to Jane, and I imagine to Chris as well. A few years ago, out of the blue, uh, through Facebook Messenger, uh, her brother, Chris, messaged me. Everything seemed normal. (laughs) And all of a sudden, tells me that he believes my whole attack was a fabrication. He believes that um, I was in, I was working with the state police and I was like working undercover or whatever to try to catch the killer, but believed my whole attack was um, fabricated. And I I was, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, all right, 
So I messaged him back and I said, let me get this clear. You believe that I, I'm lying about my whole attack? You don't believe that I was attacked? And he said, no, I don't. And I kind of like backed off. I, uh, I stopped communicating with him. I don't understand. I, I mean, uh, it's too bad because I really wanted to talk to him and learn more about Bernice. You know, I, I really wanted to get to know Bernice and I wanted to be able to um, let other people know about who Bernice was. Um, you know, her likes, her dislikes, her favorite color, anything. Just to, to get to know who Bernice was before she died. But it's unfortunate that um, I, I, I just couldn't, I can't put myself in that position of um, someone that, that feels this way for whatever reason. I mean, my heart goes out to him. I, I wish him all the best, but um, I, I don't, I, he caught me off guard when he, he messaged me that stuff. Yeah, I imagine that's painful to not be believed even though it's so kind of off base. <laughs> it was off base and I was confused and I'm still confused about it. But um, I don't know. I know he has made comments that it, it, her death has been very, very hard on um, his parents throughout the years. So yeah, it, I'm sure that it, it has definitely affected him. I know he, he's made comments on, on Facebook Messenger to me, stating that, you know, if he ever found out who it was, they wouldn't have to worry about going to jail. And so he does have a, an enormous amount of anger with what has happened to Bernice, understandably. I was thinking if you, if I was in a position where something like my sister was murdered, um, and you went for this long without answers, it's so easy to slide into conspiracy theory. Yes. Because you have nothing to go on. And you've considered every option except the strange and unusual, like you were working with whoever. Yeah. I fabricated my attack. To... Yeah. It's easy to get angry on Jane's behalf. After all she suffered, how can this person accuse her of such things? But I think this is just one of myriad manifestations of grief. When you don't have answers to a mystery, conspiracy takes over. Why did Bernice die and Jane survive? Chris just filled in the blanks. Do you have compassion for him? Absolutely. Even after he said something like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yes, I do. I. I He has made it very evident. He loved his sister. Uh, he was very close to his sister. And I can, I can only imagine, I, I actually, I can't imagine how tough it was growing up, knowing how much pain his parents must have been going through um, throughout life without his sister. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for him. Yeah, me too. 
Nope, and I searched, and I searched, and I searched for her. It was so long. Long time. It was my life's mission to find out where she was or where she went. I should have made sure she was safely taken care of, but I... It's hard because you go over it again and again in your memory. It's like, what what could I have done differently? And that's that's a hard game to play, you know, because it happened no, no. and you can't change it. No, that's a fact. I don't know. I didn't know. I just didn't know. I didn't. I didn't even have a thought in my mind that something like that could really happen. I mean, you hear about it. We live in a small town, a small area. Nothing like that happens around here. And and uh, at the time, really, I guess a lot was happening. You just don't think it can happen to you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Just a month after Bernice went missing, the town of Claremont was rocked by another disappearance. Ellen Freed was a nurse at Valley Regional Hospital. Out of all of the other women, Ellen has been something of a mystery. There's not much out there on the internet about Ellen's disappearance. The general lore is that Ellen got off of her evening shift at the hospital. She took a drive down Elm Street to Leo's Market in Delhi, a quick three-minute drive. At that time of night, Leo's would have been closed. But Ellen stopped here to use the payphone and call her sister. It was allegedly a two-hour-long conversation, and some reports say that Ellen was still on the phone by 2 a.m. when she saw a vehicle drive by the market. The car slowed as it passed Leo's, then turned around and drove by again. This must have made her nervous because Ellen hung up with her sister and started her engine. Ellen Freed was never seen again. The customer you're trying to reach is not available. Please call back 19T2. The customer you're trying to reach is not Ellen's case has been difficult for me to research because there's just not a whole lot out there. There isn't. Mm-hmm. There isn't. Um, I don't know if it's because the the family doesn't live in the area. There's just not a whole lot of information on her. I mean, we know that um, she was a nurse also. I know she wasn't married. She didn't have children. I, I also know that she um, lived some time, if not grew up in New York. But other than that... From a Valley News article dated just a week after Ellen's disappearance... It states that neither co-workers nor her neighbors know much about her personal life. 
The first charge nurse, Susan, said that she was a quiet person who didn't discuss a lot about herself. It went on to say that Ellen was a surgical student training as a maternity nurse. Ellen had moved to Claremont in 1982 and had lived on Broad Street for a while. And then, two months before she disappeared, Ellen moved to a third floor apartment at 42 Chestnut Street. Police found her 10-speed bike locked to the banister, three pairs of sneakers on a mat outside her front door. Her landlady, Jane Beaudry, said, she seems like a really nice girl. We said a few words in passing. It seems like everybody in her life, from the place she lived to the place she worked, only superficially knew Ellen. Ellen was about 5'7". She was thin and athletic. She had hazel eyes and very curly, strawberry blonde hair, which she usually wore pulled back. As Jane and I drive around Claremont trying to trace the routes Ellen would have taken, we get turned around and quickly become confused by roads that have similar names or become offshoots into more rural country. That way. We spent a whole day driving around trying to find the spots that Ellen visited, yes. where she lived, where she was abducted. And the whole trip seemed to have kind of a demoralizing effect on Jane and I. I don't know, I think Ellen just doesn't want us to know. I do. I called Valley Regional Hospital just to see if I could find someone who knew Ellen. A long shot, I know. But the administration patched me through to the OR desk, and a nurse answered. Operating room, Eileen. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, is I asked you- Eileen if she knew Ellen. I only knew Ellen because she was a new nurse at the same time I was a new nurse. And she worked 3 to 11, um, and I worked 11 to 7. So I used to see her at, at change of shift. The difference between um, evenings and, and days or nights um, is the amount of people around more than anything. During the day shift, you have more of the doctors around, visitors. A few doctors will come in at the end of the day sometimes, but at 3 to 11 was more, you know, you got them through supper, got them ready for bed, just make sure they were comfortable, that kind of thing. Sometimes you get a, a, a post-op or something if the OR was running late. She had a good bedside manner. Organization, I, I, you know, I think at times we're all a little scatterbrained depending on how the day is going. But she seemed, I mean, when I got report, it was pretty organized and stuff. She had, what I remember about Ellen is she had this frizzy hair that always seemed to be looking like she was frazzled. But <laughs> On the evening of July 19th, 1984, Ellen was finishing her shift around 11 p.m. at Valley Regional. Though Eileen cannot explicitly remember, she must have received shift change notes from Ellen that evening. She must have watched her tiredly disappear down the hall, toward the nurse's locker room. Ellen got in her car, a 1967 Chevelle, and either drove home to change, or right to Leo's one-stop market. So Jane, myself, and her friend Amanda all head down to this market to check it out. Yeah, that's where we went by the hospital up there. 
So she had, you know, that's very close to the hospital. So. Yeah, it makes sense why she would stop there. But like, they don't have pay phones at the hospital? Does that make any sense? Yeah. Why wouldn't she make a call from the hospital? Especially at 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. Leo's Market is on a busy intersection in downtown Claremont. You can hear the rush of traffic, the bell in the front door dinging constantly as people come and go. Jane had heard that the original Leo's had burned down a number of years ago and that it was rebuilt with the same name. This so don't make sense. There's a very close house there. There's a house right, right behind this. I mean, even late at night, that would have been so risky. Jane then turns around and spots an old man across the street watching us. He's sitting on one of those motorized chairs with a big orange flag jutting up behind his seat, supposedly so he doesn't get mowed down by rush hour traffic. Jane makes a beeline across the street. I follow her. Excuse me, sir. Sir? Are you, have you been in Claremont your whole life? Yeah. Yeah? Do you happen to remember when this store burnt down? Uh, when this, there used to be a film station here. Oh. Sunoco film station. And I don't I remember that burning down. This gentleman went on to tell us that it wasn't Leo's that burned down. It was the large factory across the street. Now this factory was a huge employer in the city of Claremont and it stretched the whole block. So we were doing an audio documentary about the, uh, the Connecticut River We also Valley learned from our conversation that the payphone was located on the right side of Leo's building. So we have a better sense of where Ellen might have been talking on the phone. From there, she's got a wide view of Main Street. She could have seen cars coming and going. Our new friend also tells us that this area of Claremont used to be the nightlife district back in the 80s, with a couple bars nearby. The papers reported that Ellen was not known to go to bars without a female friend, and she wasn't that interested in drinking anyway. But it is possible that whoever abducted Ellen could have been at one of those bars that evening. People speculate that Ellen was taken from this parking lot at Leo's. But Jane and I agree that it's an unlikely place for the Valley Killer to try and abduct Ellen, instigating a potentially violent and loud struggle. He would have been seen or interrupted here. So did he follow her? Did he run her off the road somewhere? Or could he have followed her across town, over the mile it took to get from Leo's to her apartment at 42 Chestnut Street? There are a lot of parallels between Ellen and Jane's encounters with the Valley Killer. For one, Jane was also in a deserted parking lot in her car. And two, the man who attacked Jane asked if the payphone was working. Ellen was talking on a payphone. Could he have asked her the same thing? Was this a ruse he used often to get women to let their guard down? And three, Ellen was abducted and taken elsewhere. Jane has always maintained that her attacker was trying to get her into his own vehicle. And perhaps if she had let him, Jane would have met the same fate as Ellen. And then one day, out of the blue, I get a reply from Ellen's sister. The same sister that Ellen had spoken to that night. 
We made a plan to speak on the phone. But the time came and went with no call. We made another plan. That too passed without a call. And then again, no call. The day after Ellen disappeared, on July 21st, which was a Saturday, Claremont police found her car parked on a strange little road called Jarvis Lane. It's about three miles northwest of Leo's Market, and just over the Sugar River, where the Koi Paper Company looms over a man-made dam. Jarvis Lane is just beyond this, and it's barely a road. After many wrong turns, Jane and I finally find the little slip of dirt that connects Plains Road to Route 12A. It was here that Ellen's car was found. The doors were locked, and her purse was inside. After finding her car, police called the hospital, where she was employed, and found out that Ellen had not returned for her shift on Friday evening, or for her Saturday shift. Her colleagues were all worried, so the police quickly opened a missing persons case. And then from the 21st onward, the Valley News reports every day on Ellen's disappearance. No leads, no breaks. Chief of Claremont Police Adam Bauer released to the media that Ellen had been on the phone with her sister until 2 a.m. Five people call in with reports of sightings of Ellen up and down the valley. Chief Bauer tracks down each of them, and they all end up being cases of mistaken identity. Dead ends. Law enforcement calls in firefighters, fishing game officials, bloodhounds, aerial and all-terrain vehicles. They walk the line, radiating out from Jarvis Lane, like some kind of strange maypole, day after day, and no trace of Ellen is found. After 10 days, police call off the search. We don't have anything, said Chief Bauer. We have no reason to believe she's out there. At this point, we have no direction. These are not comforting words to the people of Claremont. At one point, the Valley News described the community as, quote, in a tizzy, which is a funny way to describe abject terror that their daughters are disappearing into thin air. People pretty quickly began to connect Bernice to Ellen, and some even speculated that Betsy Critchley was part of it too. They feared the worst. from Ellen's sister. I'm sorry, she writes, but I feel like I just can't keep thinking about this whole thing. It's making me feel darkness to keep thinking and talking about it. I need to not focus on it for a while. Thank you. It seems Ellen's sister is as elusive as she was. There's one loose end I need to tie up about Bernice's case, so I give Toby a call once more. Hi, so I talked to Chief Prazo, and he said that Bernice was dropped off at the Main Street Bridge. Is that right? 
Main Street Bridge is where I lived. Oh. I was two houses on the other side of that bridge. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so she... So she probably did get dropped off there from work and then walked across the bridge to the house. I can't believe I didn't make the connection before. On one end of the Main Street Bridge is Leo's Market, the same place Ellen Freed was last known to have been. Was someone stalking Bernice and Ellen from Leo's? Was it a place he would frequent? Did he live nearby? In the weeks after Ellen's disappearance, people in Claremont started talking. Oh, there was all kinds of rumors. There were there was one, um, especially about a gentleman over in Kellyville. And- there's a lot of rumors about him, and there's a lot of people that don't like him. And I, I think if I ever had a thought of who it could be, it would probably steer more toward him. Jim, not his real name, was an eccentric who lived in a dilapidated Victorian house at the edge of town. He made funny comments to women, made them feel uncomfortable. You know, he had a fascination with nurses and he also worked for her father. He met her on, met her on a few different occasions when she would go to work, because a lot of times she would leave school and she would go down and sit in her father's office at the woolen mill and wait for her ride home. He knew who she was. And Jim would frequently go visit his mother at Valley Regional, the hospital where Ellen worked. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari, and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.